Welcome to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org webinar, sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TH.org is the leading online resource for documents-based study of American history, government, and civics for teachers, students, and citizens. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to uh, this month's TeachingAmericanHistory.org webinar sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TeachingAmericanHistory.org is the leading online resource for documents-based study of American history, government, and civics for teachers, students, and citizens. I'm Chris Burkett, uh, co-chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government program here at Ashland University. And if you've joined us before, you know that uh, the, the theme of this year's webinar series is Landmark Supreme Court Cases. And as always, we've pulled together a couple of thoughtful scholars to help us think uh, more deeply and better about these court cases. We also encourage all of you joining us to participate in that conversation by submitting questions in the chat box feature, and we'll try to get to as many of those as possible as always. And I see quite a few have been submitted already, so we're off to a good start. Thank you for those. In the next week, you'll receive an, an email with a link to request a certificate of participation, as well as a link to the archived video and audio from today's program. So today we're discussing Tinker v. Des Moines, a case decided in 1969 by the Supreme Court. And I'm happy to have with us today Stephen Knott of the United States Naval War College and Scott Yenner of Boise State University. Good morning to you both, gentlemen. Thanks for being here. Good morning, Chris. Good to be here. Good. Um, excuse me. Uh, I'd like to, I usually like to start these conversations with a rather broad question. Um, and I would certainly at some point in our conversation today uh, hope that both of you could help us understand um, sort of the historical context of the case um, and also perhaps the reasoning of the court and especially how this, uh, this decision affects uh, the court's understanding of, of free speech and the First Amendment uh, after, after this decision. Uh, but I, I'm going to start with an unusual question. I haven't started with this before, so I'm just going to try it. I, I, would, you, would both of you mind starting with whether or not you think the court got it right? And if so, why and why not? <laughs> if, if you don't want to start with that question, start with whatever no, no, you want to start good. with. Or, that's good. Scott, please. Anybody want to tackle that? Yeah, I have to say, uh, this is Steve Knott, I have to say that, um, you know, considering how far we are removed from uh, Tinker versus Des Moines, which was 1969, um, one of the first things that struck, one, one thing that struck me was, this was in some ways uh, a very important decision in that it sort of chipped away, in my view, at the authority of, in this case, school principals to maintain a somewhat orderly uh, classroom <clears throat> and educational environment. And uh, here we are now, uh, 50, almost 50 years later, uh, the other night uh, at Berkeley in California, which was, of course, the home of the great so-called free speech movement of the 1960s. Uh, you had a speaker who, by the way, I find particularly objectionable, but nonetheless, you had a speaker who was invited to speak 
<laughs> on campus and who was essentially chased off uh, by a mob who burned and engaged in vandalism and apparently beat up somebody wearing a Trump hat or something to that effect. So I guess the point being that uh, I'm not sure Tinker versus Des Moines, at least in terms of the impact that it had on the American body politic, uh, was particularly healthy. Um, it just seems to me that schools, particularly American higher education now, have become these uh, battlegrounds of various political or various ideologies, I should say. And uh, you could, I think, make the case that Tinker versus Des Moines sort of started us down this path of kind of uh, politicizing the educational realm of American society. I'm gonna I'm gonna take a different uh, different. I'm Scott Yenner um, here in Boise, uh, and uh, can you hear me and everything? Yep. Um, I'm gonna take a different angle on that, uh, though I may come to a similar conclusion that Steve uh, comes to. To me, one of the interesting things about the the case is how um, it, it's like it's like part of a snowball rolling down a hill, that uh, that several cases contribute to. So uh, uh, for instance, like burning draft card cases um, and, uh, and criminal procedure cases from the early 1960s. And, uh, and, and, and what all of them have the effect of doing is creating a kind of momentum against, um, I'll say like an education towards self-control and an education that emphasizes lawfulness, all of those things kind of going together. So it's creating, or it's, I, I shouldn't say it's creating, but it's contributing to the momentum of a particular kind of culture. And, uh, and therefore I find the dissent that Justice Black writes in the case, because he situates the, the case in that culture and in that historical context. And I find it to be at least a very interesting um, and, and you know, rather compelling argument uh, that this is pointing to a new vision of what it means to be an American and what the relationship between the populace to lawfulness and self-control is and the powers that the, the government might have to promote self-control. So, I mean, I, I might even broaden it a little more, like this is the same year that the uh, Supreme Court loosens up its definitions of pornography. Now, these two things are not perfectly related except they're both contributing to a similar kind of ethic. So um, I, I see this case as part of that snowball as much as the one that Steve points to um, relating it to just schools in particular. When you say this, um, this, this is part of a series of cases that seems to lay out a new or be related to a new vision of what it means to be an American, can you that's really interesting. Can you just say a little bit more about what you what you mean by that? Are you talking about the relationship of individuals to to government? Um, yeah. What sense do you mean that term? So so what? I, uh, so I'll I'll try to put it some some somewhat like this. Um, the 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 old vision of citizenship is that the the citizens make the laws and they adhere to the laws uh, because they're something that they make. Uh, we can see the laws as a product of our own consent. And part of the stream of cases that I'm referring to carve out exceptions to general laws uh, for those who want to like civilly dis, uh, disobey those laws. 
and then it it provides comfort to those people who want to disobey. So it, I'll say, like chips away at the idea that laws that are generally passed, consented to by the people's representatives, are, uh, I'm not going to say optional, but are not necessary to adhere to, and because the law would then limit an individual's will. And so the pornography case, I'm, I'm related. I mean, it, it sounds a little crazy in a way to relate this to the pornography cases, but I'm just going to no, do not. that. They're, they're, hand, they're handed down in, in, very, in almost the same year. Um, is the pornography cases are laws that limit access to, you know, to exotic dancing and things like that. And that's those laws are there to promote self-control, because if if the if, if pornography were widely viewed, it might have some sort of limiting effect on people's self-control or might suggest that it was acceptable. So another aspect of that old American character was the the importance of promoting self-control through laws. And the Supreme Court at this time is also chipping away at that. So um, I don't know, that, that's how I see them related. I hope I addressed the question that you asked, Chris. Uh, Scott or uh, Steve, feel free to jump in at any point if you'd like on this. Um, but you're you're raising more questions for me, Scott, which I find interesting, and I don't want to take up too much time with them. But would you say that uh, is, is so? It's you mentioned that, um, that in an earlier way of thinking about this, because the, uh, the idea was that in a republic, for example, I'll use the term in a republic. The idea is that the people have a role in making the laws. And therefore, they obey those laws, which they technically make for themselves. I mean, really, it's co Congress makes the laws or their state legislatures. But because of the Republican nature of society, as it was understood, we obey the laws that we give ourselves, and that's self-government. And so if I'm following you correctly, it seems as though this trend in, of the courts in the, in, the, in the late 50s, early 60s, even into the 70s, seems to reflect a shift in public opinion away from the idea that laws that that we ourselves we give ourselves these laws and 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 i'm not i'm not being very clear i wonder what the cause of that is would you is it a is it an, an effect of say the changing meaning of democracy it seems to me that democracy by the 1960s means less that we give ourselves certain laws and instead, the government is there to do more and more of these things for us. So there seems to be more of a disconnect. So it may it may have to do with the sort of evolving meaning of what democracy means, or is it a, a changing meaning of liberty or freedom? Even does freedom now mean we have to be protected from the laws themselves, which potentially can be can become tyrannical, as Justice Fortas says at the end of his yeah. opinion. Right? What we're yeah. really trying to protect against here is the idea that that the state and its man various manifestations can become tyrannical. I don't want to monopolize uh, discussion here, but I, I guess another way of putting what I'm saying, Chris, is that I would see this case in the context of something like Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail as much as I would see it as part of an ongoing discussion about the nature of school discipline. Because in both cases, um, nice. there's an argument made for liberal reform based on the idea that, you know, a, a duly enacted regulation uh, require, uh, allows for exceptions 
uh, and justifies exceptions to the obedience to those regulations. And uh, and so I'm just trying to I'm 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 just trying to put like a parallel track in which to understand the, the this case. And I see. No, I think it's really useful. Interesting. Go ahead, Steve. Please. Yeah. Well, I I think Scott's made some some great points. I mean, you have to see this case, Tinker versus Des Moines in the context of the 1960s. And the 1960s, it seems to me, was uh, all about this notion of questioning authority. And Scott just mentioned Martin Luther King. Uh, you know, the fact is that by the time this decision is handed down, King is dead. There's been six, seven years of nonstop, uh, in some cases, nonviolent civil disobedience, in other cases, more violent forms of civil disobedience. But the point being, this is a decade with the idea of questioning authority uh, is, is uh, in full swing. And the notion of deference to authority, I think, is dying. The other thing, of course, that's dying uh, is arguably, you could say, federalism. In a way, this is a case about federalism. And I think Justice Black alluded to this by basically saying, you know, you have a group of five, six, or seven justices, seven in this case, uh, imposing their will on a local school board or substituting their will for that of the local school board. So uh, both states' rights or federalism, arguably, is under assault in the 1960s. And then, of course, uh, as I said earlier, the whole notion of questioning authority is is very much in vogue. So, um, yeah, I, I sort of started at the micro level, but I think Scott was was right to kind of bring us back to the to the bigger picture. Uh, there have been a, a couple of comments since you started uh, asking whether it's important to distinguish between free speech issues on the high school level and on the college campus, which you sure. referenced earlier. Do you want to you want to address that? Yeah, I actually think the case for more uh, restrictions was, would, or for, for sort of uh, deference to authority, if you will, would be much stronger at the high school level than at the college level. I don't know if that's what the, the questioner was getting at, but uh, uh, yeah. This that, is from David. Was, David yeah. says, is it important to differentiate between different- Chris, can I just- Yeah, please, go right Chris, ahead. Chris, can I just, I just want to weigh in on that quickly. Um, and, and part of that actually ends up being borne out by the history of the case. Um, I mean, the reason that we are interested in having different standards for younger children and older children than adults is, uh, I should say older kids, I don't wanna say uh, the college students or children, but um, is, that, is that they're not fully formed at that point. And, uh, and the, the Tinker kids themselves, I'm not gonna say they ended up being disasters, but um, they ended up being uh uh <laughs> perpetual uh Activists. protesters yeah, yeah. Oh, and uh and like uh, unemployable and uh and so <laughs> you know which you know I mean, there's a case to be made for being unemployable uh socrates made it but um uh, in any event i just wanted to weigh in on that scott thank you for that mccarthyite attack on the thinker <laughs> <laughs> Well, okay, but but we have to. I think we have to push this a little further. And I'm playing, playing devil. I'm just trying to play devil's advocate here a little bit. Um, so, Scott, you said that um, we have to keep in mind that children, in a certain sense, aren't fully formed. But I think um, Fortis emphasizes, if I remember correctly, the importance of, of thinking of them as persons, 
and that persons in a way are persons. He doesn't make the distinction, I don't think, between adults and youths. He makes the, he kind of admits that there's a distinction between the um, more public settings and a school because of the particular purpose of the school, but he, he doesn't quite make that distinction. A person is a person. The 14th Amendment therefore applies to everybody and it's therefore unconstitutional to abridge the free speech of of uh, children even in schools. So how do you I mean argument there would be that they never would consistently adhere to that uh, to erasing that distinction and, and and even even their pornography cases which come later don't allow for uh, child pornography and other uh, other things that is they're willing in most uh, venues to make this distinction between students between children and adults because children are not fully able to consent. And I, I know that Black mentions this in, in his dissent. And uh, I think there's a long tradition in American law and education acknowledging that distinction. So, um, uh, so I don't think they're willing to consistently adhere to that distinction. And I really think the context is so important here. I think that the, the court really thinks that, that students that all the way down to what the, the 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 girl tinker was in what sixth grade or something like that um, have made up their minds. They they pretend that they think that the people have the, the, the kids the students have made up their minds and all of this, but um, uh, they're not going to be willing to adhere consistently to that distinction. And just to build on on Scott's uh, McCarthyite attack on the Tinker family. Um, it's it's uh, it, it is fairly clear to me that that the uh, the father uh, I believe was a Methodist minister, although as Justice Black points out, he was a minister at a church that didn't exist or something to that effect. Right. Um, but they they were sort of the children. You could make the case were kind of used uh, both by the father and by the American Civil Liberties Union. It sort of quickly swung into action. Uh, the larger point I'm trying to make, as it strikes me, is this is a classic case of activists using the court to promote uh, change, to promote social change. Okay. And that at least that at least has to be acknowledged. It seems. Yeah. To me. No, I think that's that's really important, Steve. And quite a few uh, people have submitted comments or questions about sort of framing this decision in the context of uh, the larger turmoil of the 1960s and the changes that are taking place um, with regard to how, again, uh, citizens think about individual rights and, and the role of government. Uh, and one person in particular, of course, this has to do with protesting the Vietnam uh, War. Um, somebody pointed out, I can't remember who it was, uh, pointed out that, that the, uh, the protest actually took place, I believe, in 1965. Right. December 19, Christmas season 1965. Right. So um, this would have been done under LBJ's watch. Uh, okay. By the time the, the decision is handed down, Nixon is in office. So I guess the, uh, somebody wanted to know um, uh, uh, um, just in general about the, the context of, of how protests against Vietnam had unfolded since this initial Sure. Uh, protest in 65 and whether or not the increased civil um, uh, protesting against Vietnam may or may not have had an influence on the court's decision. Well, I, I can't say conclusively that the increase in protests, which really did peak in 1969, 1970, 
because uh, Nick Nixon bore more of the brunt of the protests than LBJ did, I think partly for, for partisan reasons, but regardless. Um, I do think the Supreme Court does have a tendency, they don't like to get too far behind public opinion, or maybe I should say the modern Supreme Court especially. Um, so I can't prove this conclusively, but I would be willing to stick my neck out here a bit and say that the court was aware of the world going on outside the beautiful chambers of the Supreme Court and wanted to stay somewhat in step with the broader public opinion. If, if I could just add also, uh, Chris, to the broader question of Vietnam protests, uh, the Port Huron statement, which was issued in 1962, even before Vietnam becomes a major issue. This, of course, is the famous manifesto authored by Tom Hayden and the Students for a Democratic Society, uh, which I do, which I think echoes what you and Scott were discussing earlier, uh, this uh, new conception of what it means to be a citizen. And I don't necessarily recommend that everyone plow through word for word of the Port Huron statement. You're liable to want to do yourself in at the end of all of it. But uh, there is a, sorry, <laughs> there is a, uh, 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 this sense of alienation, this sense that this younger generation in particular is not being listened to, uh, that they are creative, they are dynamic, they are really just great people. And um, that sort of, uh, th those authors of the Port Huron statement are the folks two to three years later in 1964 and 65 who are going down to Mississippi uh, to register African Americans to vote and in many cases are getting beaten up or if they're not getting beaten up they certainly know people who are getting beaten up it was a very ugly violent situation they are then of course further radicalized by that experience in Mississippi and then along with Martin Luther King and a number of others, they begin to see the war in Vietnam as an extension of the oppression of African-Americans here at home in places like Mississippi and Alabama and elsewhere. So it is all part of this piece of questioning authority, of beginning to believe that the United States has, uh, uh, has become some, uh, you know, an authoritarian, uh, governed by an authoritarian regime and that these types of uh, displays of civil disobedience are the highest forms of, of patriotism. And if I could just add one other sort of major event, I think on the road to, to Tinker and other cases, um, and that of course is the free speech movement at Berkeley, which I may have alluded to already earlier, uh, which occurs from like 65, through 65, 66, um, led by Mario Savio and others, this, you know, trying to get the University of California at Berkeley to overturn its ban on these kinds of political demonstration and of course, demonstrations and of course, this free speech movement succeeds uh, uh, for better or for worse. Reagan, by the way, referred to it as the filthy speech movement. Right, <laughs> right. You know, it's, um, I'm glad you brought up the Port Huron statement. Uh, when we ask scholars to to come on and join us for a conversation, we ask them to recommend uh, extra reading. And it seems as though that in a lot of our court cases, the Port Huron statement has been recommended, the court cases in the 1960s, especially uh, into the 70s, because it does um, it is a it does nicely capture the kind of discontent um, 
and 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 really in a way um, self-doubting. Um, what we find, I think, in the in the initial statement of principles or reasons for why this is being written is um, a lot of people, especially younger people in the 1960s, are doubting whether or not the the things that have sort of traditionally been touted as great American virtues are really, in fact, virtues. Um, they're questioning the justice of the regime, the historical justice of the regime, and um, and 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 largely just wondering whether or not we really uh, have abandoned. It's interesting, and toward the beginning of the poor Huron statement, they make a reference to the Declaration of Independence. Uh, but they're wondering the, of the extent to which we deviated from the things we once claimed to believe to be true. Uh, and they cite, of course, a lot of the things you cited, Steve. We're in the middle of the Cold War, which of course puts immense pressure on us to so, uh, uh, immense pressure for self-reflection on what we really believe in. Uh, they mention, of course, the civil rights um, injustices taking place um, with African Americans at the time. And they also mentioned this alludes back to what Scott was saying earlier, I think, or referencing earlier, this kind of sense of disconnected, uh, disconnectedness between the individual and their government, right? So one of the things that the, the um, SDS are calling for is a renewed kind of civic engagement in a certain way. I'm not sure exactly how they thought that would play out, but it seems as though one of the ways they wanted to get the, 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 um, the uh, people re-engaged in civic participation was precisely through these kinds of protests. So I do think it's an extraordinarily significant document for that sense, in that sense. Um, yeah, it does, this reveals a lot of things. Go ahead, Steve, please. Uh, Chris, if I could, uh, uh, Jim Hooper, one of the uh, one of our uh, uh, participants today, uh, raises a good point. Uh, I had mentioned earlier that the intensification of the Vietnam War protests might have had a partisan uh, element to it. I, I'm still willing to stand by that, but uh, Jim Hooper made a good point that. The media in 1969, 1970, and I'm also thinking particularly here of the Pentagon Papers, was releasing more information about the actual conduct of the war, as Jim notes. And that that's a fair point. And he goes on to add that many of us did not know what was really going on until that time. So fair enough. Uh, good point, Jim. We've got a, a couple, a, several good questions keep coming in. Okay, here's a fun one. I'm going to throw it out there and see if either of you want to take this one on. Could one make the argument that UC Berkeley is the birthplace of the free speech movement, just as Boston was the birthplace of the American Revolution, because both seem to question authority and government? So, Steve, you were a young man then. Uh, you can probably answer this better than I can. <laughs> Jeez. Oh God! You're, I see you're continuing your McCarthy I jihad here. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, I, I look. There's part of me that just uh, immediately uh, recoils from the thought of comparing people like Mario Savio to uh, Sam Adams or uh, Otis or some of the other Boston patriots who uh, who led the the call and John Adams, of course, although well, who led the call for uh, resistance to the crown. Um, I, I, I do think there is a difference between now. It's a, now it is also true that there were violent or semi-violent protests, such as the Boston Tea Party, which did damage property, no question. 
Um, so I'm willing to, to, to acknowledge this to a point. Again, I just see a real difference between, I mean, if you go back and read Mario Savio's famous speech, uh, I think of this, actually it would have been right around the time of the Tinker protest. I was gonna say December, 1965. I'm not sure I have that date right, but Mario Savio's famous uh, free speech speech uh, you know, it, it's 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 incoherent. I mean, it's filled with obscenities. It's uh, it just strikes me as a much lower form of political discourse than one might have found back in Boston in 17, uh, 73, 74, 75. But uh, I'll leave it at that. Steve, would it be would it be fair to say that while there may be a parallel that in both cases they were fighting against tyranny in the name of liberty, but but the the definition of tyranny and the definition of liberty is very different for both. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. that's a great way to put it, Chris. I think I think the motives are quite different. Um, and 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 just as a historical point, <clears throat> the um, the movement uh, toward you know a modern understanding of free speech had been underway for twenty years <clears throat> by the time the free speech movement was really kicked in. Court cases have been changing our understanding of obscenity, uh, you know, uh, decreasing the ability of local governments to uh, replace certain kinds of restrictions on free speech. Um, so I, I think that the free speech movement was, um, uh, yeah, I would just say it was late to the game. I mean, Lady Chatterley's lover uh, book uh, had been banned and a Supreme Court case allowing that to be published was in the early 50s. And uh, so things had been going on, you know, way before that. So I, I, that's one reason, at least historically, to question the linkage between the two. By the way, Scott, that reminds me, I know you're familiar with this. There was another case, was it the case on the memoirs of Fanny Hill? Are you familiar with that case? <laughs> Scott has a well-thumbed copy of that book. Memoirs <laughs> of Fanny Hill. It's a, it's a, it's, a, it's related to what you were saying. So I've used that in my class. During the McCarthy. Now who's being McCarthyite? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> well, um, let me back up a little bit then, and I'm going to ask the question a little bit differently, and I'll go specific. This was addressed specifically to Steve. Uh, maybe this is a different way to ask the same question. That's from Larry, and he says it's an inside joke, but I actually think it's worth asking. How would uh, Jefferson and Hamilton think about this case? Or, or maybe the broader way to think about it, and I'm interested in this, how would the founders think about this case in light of their understanding of free speech? I do think that's a worthwhile thing to think about. Yeah. But either of you, please feel free to tackle that. I'm going to let Scott go first on, on this one. Same question and and uh, and yeah, can you hear me? Can you not hear me? Yep. Um, uh, that is an interesting question. Uh, there's a later case uh, that Justice Thomas actually raises this issue uh, in a in a in the Bongs for Jesus case uh, that happened in 2006, which is a very similar case to Tinker, in the sense that this, uh, the local school district punishes a student for a particular kind of speech. In this case, apparently promoting drug, um, the drug culture at an Alaska school. He has a sign, uh, bong, bong hits for Jesus. And uh, he's suspended for eight days and such. And in this case, 
Thomas writes a concurring opinion saying that the school district is uh, within its rights to punish this particular student. And in his concurring opinion, Thomas gives an account of what the educational purposes of, uh, of common schools were for the American founders. So I'm not going to talk about Jefferson and Hamilton, but rather Noah Webster and something like that. And uh, and what Thomas argues, and you know, there's a lot of citations in it. I think it's a pretty persuasive argument, is that in in the original understanding of education, the uh, they took very seriously shaping the mind and character of the student so that they would be prepared to exercise liberty rational rationally, so that they would govern themselves uh, and you know govern their own passions, and hence. Um, uh, be, be prepared to pass laws for the whole community and such. And uh, and he goes through the, the, the various local regulations, uh, assertions of authority over children, and concludes that the founders embraced an idea of education that included this Latin phrase, in locos parentis, which means, you know, in the place of children, or in the place of parents, schools exercise of authority. So, um, he doesn't see and he, you know i think he makes the argument that those common schools operated on this principle of in loco parentis and he doesn't see the schools that therefore as representing only government or only the community but standing in for the place of parents hence uh able to uh, regulate the behavior of children in ways that would not be done um elsewhere uh, so, you know, I think that's one like broad way of saying how the founders approached education and uh, how that might have implications here. They would not see the school simply as an expression of the community, but also as like a mixture of community and parental um, power. Yeah, I, I would just add great, great, great answer, Scott. Uh, I would just add. Uh, not much here, but to, to, regarding Hamilton and Jefferson on, on an issue like this, I think the sort of conventional narrative would say that Hamilton, of course, being a high federalist and having what some would say was an authoritarian streak, I wouldn't say it, but many do, uh, and, and the federalist being associated with this concept of, of hierarchy and deference to authority, uh, that, that Hamilton would not support the outcome of this of this case. However, that does not mean that Jefferson would have. Uh, I know he's constantly portrayed as the uh, the founding father who was the great civil libertarian. Uh, but but um, I think that's a bit of a myth. I mean, there are plenty plenty of examples of Jefferson, uh, including when he was president, urging state governors to go after Federalist newspapers who were critical of the Jefferson administration. So Jefferson seems to have felt that it was uh, okay uh, in terms of state or local authorities to regulate certain types of speech. So point being, I'm just trying to kind of have the participants here not assume that Hamilton would be all gung-ho for stomping down the Tinker protest and Jefferson would think it was great. I think it's far more complicated than that. And I think it might have been, it might be a case where the two of them would see eye to eye on this, that in fact, uh, these school authorities did have the right to prohibit such protests. Yeah, especially again, in light of the, as you mentioned, Steve, the, 
with very specific purpose of schools or education as both Hamilton and Jefferson understood them. Again, some, some differences I'm sure among them, perhaps on the kinds of virtues or qualities or right. things like that that were most important or even types of knowledge that might have been most important. But in general, it seems like they shared a very clear understanding of the purpose of education. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if that hasn't been lost or I don't wanna say lost, but perhaps um, clouded in part uh, maybe not so much on the high school level, but it seems like uh, on the university level, and this may tie back to your, your example of Berkeley, um, um, it's, I, I think it's fair to say that, there, that what was once a pretty clear understanding of the purpose of, of a college or university education has been clouded and perhaps substituted or been replaced, or I would, I would even go so far as to say supplanted with a notion that what's more important is um, is uh, is protests um, and the mm. sorts of things that we're seeing now. I don't want to overdo that because I do think universities were always meant to be a place of of open and free discourse. Uh, I, in my studies of James Madison, for example, uh, he was at a when he was at the College of New Jersey in Princeton, they were they were quite radical in some of their protests. They were protesting the abuses of the British. Um, uh, over the American colonies when he was there. I, we know that he participated in some some protests. But um, but again, I would say that uh, the, the, the mode in which they were conducted were, 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 were quite subdued. And um, and the purposes for which they were conducted were, were quite different, I think. Um, anyway, but anyway, sorry, keep Chris, going up. Uh, one other thing that if you really wanted a good answer to, which I didn't think I gave you, to the Jefferson's position on a case like Tinker, um, it would be important to go back and look at his establishment of the University of Virginia um, and the kind of guidance or perhaps rules and regulations, if you want to call them that, that he laid down. And he did prohibit uh, certain kinds of uh, speech, in a sense. I mean, he was he wanted to make sure that the professors that taught at the University of Virginia were not not drawn from places like Harvard. Uh, I mean, he was very concerned about the content of the message that the students attending the University of Virginia would, would receive. I think he also put some restrictions on religious education or the presence of religious figures on campus. So that, that would be the place to, to look. Uh, Scott, you mentioned earlier um, the, the, the role of parents and how, how um, uh, there is a kind of history of, of uh, in loco parentis that is a, a kind of temporary transfer of authority over children by schools. Uh, I know you're, you've doing, you're doing some research and writing on this, right? You've, done, you've, done some, <laughs> you've written on this quite extensively. Um, I'm trying to tie this back to something you said earlier about um, the idea that students are persons but not fully formed persons. Um, where does the authority of schools over speech for students, I mean, wh what do you, where does that come from? I'm not asking the question very clearly. Um, insofar as schools have always had a kind of uh, authority over what students can say or even do in the name of speech, what was the traditional basis for that? And was that traditional basis of authority by schools over children reflected in the decision in Tinker v. Des Moines? 
Well, I, I, I mean, I refer the gentleman to the answer I gave moments before. Um, I think that the traditional basis for restrictions that uh, that uh, would have been placed on common schools, that is lower level schools, is in loco parentis. The, um, I think the basis for the the kind of restrictions that Jefferson would uh, would put in place um, at the University of Virginia is um, shaping the mind of students toward participation in or toward knowledge of an appreciation for our form of government and uh and so i think that I, I think you know the lower levels and higher levels have different accounts of why there might be a shaping of curriculum um and uh and you know i, I should say something something else on this i mean i'll the way I would frame it is the way we've moved away from in loco parentis is now we see we see the community, uh, the common school, the lower level schools, all school, uh, all public schools as, you know, as participating in teaching common values uh, to, to students. And I think that that was in, in some ways always the case that there were common values taught. But um, it's not clear to me how much respect for in loco parentis there is in the teaching of common values um, so that so that you end up in today's situation with uh, you know some values contradicting the parents values and this is something that all educators end up having to having to deal with so i think we've moved more away from in loco parentis and more toward a john dewey understanding of what public education is which is instilling in the student social socializing the student instilling in students social values and this in a way heightens the conflict between parents and children uh, or between parents and the school because it's one against the other instead of one with the other and uh and anyways that's i hope that gets to the oh, question you're asking him yeah. well that's that's it that's i'm glad you brought dewey up because it reminds me of but i know you're familiar with this piece as well his my the piece my pedagogic creed uh which is widely available and um accessible where uh he lays out specifically the idea that the primary purpose of of, of schools is um to prepare students to go out and um work for and and bring about social change uh, i mean that's what he's that's how he begins and ends the piece right the purpose of an education is to prepare uh citizens who can go out and uh and bring about change in a certain sense which does set up this tradition as or a, a set of attention especially if you think of the family as sort of the traditional bastion of uh of tradition itself right in a certain sense i mean the family's the, purpose is is preservation it's to preserve and um and so the modern go ahead please yeah chris could i just i want to just you know the school board in this des moines versus tinker case doesn't it just appear to everyone i mean this is just my own impression uh doesn't it appear just to be kind of charming in its uh in its antiquated notions that that the the black armbands could distract and uh and uh and inhibit its educational mission, which is non-political in some way, uh, or at least they want to see itself as non-political. And, uh, and, and, and it seems like they're, they're arguing about something so uh, insignificant. And in a way, the court agrees 
because the armbands don't give rise to any disruption or controversy, they're so insignificant that the court, the, 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 school, the, the school board should, in a sense, just tolerate them. But the school, I mean, like what school board today would, uh, I mean, today we're dealing, we deal with different issues, student obscenity, uh, student dress codes. And, but even in this case, the, the court says, you know, schools are free to regulate dress codes and stuff like that. The New York Times uh, day uh, editorial, the day after the Tinker decision was armbands, no, or armbands, yes, mini skirts, no. And, uh, and anyways, I'm just, I, it, it just seems to me that the school board seems so quaint when we, when we read this decision, it seems so charming and simple. Um, but I, I do think that that was the previous understanding of what education was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Scott, you're you're right about that, and and of course, uh, Black does make the point in his dissent that in fact those armbands were disruptive. I don't look. I mean, I don't know if he's reaching here, but uh, he talks about the. I think the record overwhelmingly shows that the armbands did exactly what the elected school officials and principals foresaw. That is, it took the students' minds off their classwork and diverted them to thoughts about the highly emotional subject of the Vietnam War. And I repeat that if the time has come when pupils of state-supported schools, kindergartens or grammar schools or high schools can defy and flout orders of school officials to keep their minds on their schoolwork, it is the beginning of a new revolutionary era of permissiveness in this country fostered by the judiciary. I, I think he was right. So, so the rule that seems to come out of this decision is all speech, all forms of speech, even all forms of expression, as uh, Fortas puts it, have to be permissible unless, unless there is a, a clear evidence that this will somehow prevent the school from fulfilling its fundamental purpose, right, of education. So uh, several several people have submitted questions about that that rule that seems to come out of this decision. Because on the one hand, it, it does per it of course it's clear that it leans toward permissiveness of speech, and car only carves out an exception, which seems to put the burden on the school to prove the exception, but where is the who's who decides and where is the line drawn between what is permissible or what is going to be disruptive or not? And um, a couple of people, I think Larry and a, and a handful of others, Nick and others, want to want to you know want to have asked how far can this rule be taken in term or I'm not doing this very clearly. How clear is the rule that actually comes out of the court case? Um, I mean, can, you could make the argument that all sorts of things are are uh, are, are disruptive, or you could make the argument that um, um, all political speech that is in fact going to be disruptive must now be tolerated. I'm not being, I'm not framing a very clear question, but it just seems to me that the that on the one hand the court tries to say yes, free speech must be protected for students in schools. Um, and here's the exception to the rule, but, but but it's not very clear what what the standard is coming out of this case. It, it's it's not clear at all, and it's like it's like the pornography cases that Scott alluded to earlier. Uh, that that standard was constantly shifting. You know, was it community standards that should apply, or some sort of 
definition of what constituted, you know, repulsive material. I'm not getting the language quite right, but that that was a very shifting definition as well. And I think you see the same effect here. Um, could it, could I add to? So Scott mentioned earlier about this snowball effect. Uh, he was absolutely correct because within two years of Tinker versus Des Moines, we had the case of Cohen versus California, C-O-H-E-N, where uh, a man was walking through a courthouse in Los Angeles, California, with a jacket emblazoned with the words, and I'll clean it up, F the draft. And he was arrested for violating some sort of uh, decency provision or whatever, and I think hit with a 30-day jail sentence or whatever. And the Supreme Court overturned that conviction saying that the state standard about what constituted offensive material that one could display in public um, was, was simply too broadly drafted and a violation of the First Amendment. So uh, sorry to take us off, off, off course here. But. So, so I want to, uh, I think it's a great question, Chris. Um, and, you know, looking at the as I understand, you know, backing up how the Supreme Court operates, they have the oral arguments, then they have a conference of sorts where the judges get around a table and they decide how they're going to vote on the case, and then they assign the writing of an opinion. And the conference for Tinker versus Des Moines, uh, apparently there were much more extreme um, defenses of the Tinker position. Um, the Chief Justice Warren, who would have been the first one to speak, um, wanted to say that any any distinction among speech was uh, among kinds of speech was unconstitutional. So that symbolic speech and expression had to be treated the same under all regulations, and hence this regulation had to go, which would have meant made it very difficult to have any regulations on speech within schools. And uh, D Justice Douglas wanted to say that any kind of prior restraint on speech had to go. And this one was a prior restraint because you wanted, wanted to let them wear the armband and see what happened, in a sense. Um, and the justice who ended up writing the decision, Fortas, would have been among the last to speak. Uh, and he wanted to carve out this more ambiguous but moderate position, which is to say, this is a kind of pure speech that would be tolerated as long as it didn't disrupt something. And the, the 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 unless part ends up being what is I don't know like all subsequent cases end up defining the borderline between unless and the speech, and um, but there were obviously in the air and during the arguments um, much more clear, but also more extreme if you want to think of it like that those things go together uh, defenses of the protest position. Because, I mean, I, I, so that helps me see the, the kind of rule that Fortis and the court want to establish here. That is, they want to protect free speech that is not, um, is, I, I think you meant, you know, as he puts it, disruptive or, or something like that. But I do think he gets the facts of the case wrong, by the way, and Black does point that out, right? <laughs> I mean, the speech was, in fact, disruptive. I mean, it actually, there were classes that were camp that had to be canceled and and things like that. But that, that reminds me of um, of a lot of the laws regarding free speech that were on the books in the states, especially in the 1790s and in the early 1800s. 
where because Scott, you mentioned there should no there should be no sort of antecedent restraints on speech. There were a lot of uh, I think a lot of Americans in, in the various states at the time thought that was really important. There should be no prior restraints on what could or could not be said. But that doesn't mean everybody can say anything without consequences. And it seems to me that what the sort of traditional way of thinking about this was, if, if they, a lot of times they would sort of look at the motive and the effect of the speech. If the motive and the effect of the speech showed that the intent of certain kinds of speech was to disturb the peace or incite violence, for example, then, um, then that kind of speech could be punished. But, but it wasn't the speech that was being punished. It was the it was the motive or the effect. I mean, you have to have laws in the books that per, that protect the peace and uh, uh, punish people for disturbing the peace or or inciting violence. It would seem to me, and that was sort of the common sense view, I think, of of this um, well into the 20th century. Uh, it seems as though the court wants to say, yes, we still believe that, but in this particular case, wearing a black armband was not going to uh, was not meant to and did not in fact incite violence or disturb the peace at least within the schools so i can kind of see where they're coming from again i think the facts are wrong black again i think it's justice black yeah uh, um, you know points out yeah black justice in his dissent that you know there was a lot of uh, disturbing of the peace that was going on right. and as you both pointed out earlier this was intentional that was precisely the intent of uh whoever came up with the idea of the black armbands was to was to sort of disturb the peace within schools. But but um, OK, so uh, I guess my next question and uh, uh, quite a few questions coming in have to do with, again, where do we then draw the line with regard to political speech? So Larry, for example, says um, um, in light of the, uh, the Tinker decision, could a school prohibit a, a student from wearing a Trump button to school? In light of the fact that it seems, anyway, if you you know from the way things are portrayed on TV, that the mere sight of a Trump button is going to incite people to, to violence and it's going to be a disruption. Uh, I I think the the pre Tinker Court, or maybe you'd have to go back even a little further, back prior to the Warren Court. We haven't even used the term Warren Court today. I don't believe. Yeah, that's interesting. Isn't that's it? an important thing to mention. This is a this is a court that in some ways you could make the case was determined to remake American society, perhaps even refound American society, and certainly did so in a, in a very positive way uh, in the issue on the area of civil rights. Um, but I think if you went back prior to the Warren court, the idea that schools would be, I'd say public elementary, public high schools would be sort of free of that kind of politicking uh, what would have, would have been sustained. And in my view, and this probably makes me a throwback, I noticed, uh, I think it was Janine Alexander earlier, uh, said that my view of free speech was similar to the British view of the Sons of Liberty. <laughs> uh, she, she may have a point there. Um, I, I, in my view, that was a preferable situation to the, the, the situation we have today where schools are yeah, in, again, in my view, highly politicized to the detriment of education. Again, yeah, Larry, just looking at, go ahead, Scott, please. So, so the, the, way, the way I think I would, I would try to address Larry's question is that is that what Fortis seems to do in that majority opinion is he calls the wearing of an armband pure speech, and what the court puts its um, 
puts its imprimatur on is pure speech. Now, pure speech seems to be a speak a, a, a speaking without effects outside of itself. That is, it's, it can be ignored. It does. It's not a call for action. Um, it's just pure speech. And I think even this case would allow schools to prohibit the Make America Great hat, of which, you know, they're all over my room here. Uh, just kidding. Um, I, th I think even this case, because it limits the understanding of what speech is to this pure speech, um, even this case might be able to prohibit politicking buttons in class. And, and that speaks to it, its potentially narrow holding. It, it really depends on what comes after the case to figure out how broadly we are to understand it. And what really happens after the case when it comes to schools, I would say, after the case, is that it gets narrowed. Um, and so that today there's even question about there's even a question about what whether it's good law, whether it's still um, really on the books, because subsequent cases have narrowed it, chipped away, have built up the unlesses, and uh, and have narrowed the holding quite a bit, although not explicitly overturned it. Or I, if you want me to cite, I can cite cite a chapter and verse on that if you'd like. But <laughs> well, they make a ruling and then they come along later and they fine tune it and and and, and narrow. That's they do that quite frequently. So, but I I want to go back. So. Somebody wears a black armband to the school, in this case, to protest the Vietnam War. What if the black armband has a swastika on it? Larry wants to know. Well, in light of, this, in light of the, the court's reasoning and tinker. There's a swastika. You want me to go here? Should, should, should the McCarthyite? No. Nobody, yeah, nobody wants to touch that when I'm okay no. with that. No. Well, what, what I what I like about that question is Larry is raising the question in that case of whether or not there's genuinely neutral speech or a genuinely neutral um, position on this. Is the court endorsing the message of the armband as it's allowing it, or is it merely saying that any pure speech act will be permitted, which would allow, which, which would hence allow the uh, the armband? My own belief on this is that the court probably is not neutral and would find what whatever happened the swastika uh, armband to be disruptive and chilling or a, a version of a different kind of prohibited speech like hate speech and hence would, would you know regardless of its effects would probably allow the school regulation in that case. They would find a way of distinguishing the two, which to me suggests that they're really not neutral. And this is a lot more about the Vietnam War and the cultural revolution of which uh, the opposition to the Vietnam War was a part um, than just about speech, which <laughs> I hope that's a good way of saying that. That is a great answer. That's a good, that's very good. Chris, could um, I add, uh, again, I as I started today, I, I found Justice Black's dissent to be quite powerful. And at one point, he, he says, uh, it is a myth to say that any person has a constitutional right to say what he pleases, where he pleases, and when he pleases. And he cites certain specific examples. You know, you would never grant someone uh, the complete 
freedom of speech and expression to you know, enter a synagogue or enter a Catholic church with anti-Catholic, or in the case of the synagogue, anti-Semitic material. Uh, so the fact is, despite the, the sort of soaring rhetoric of Justice Fortas's uh, majority opinion, where he says that one does not surrender one's constitutional rights at the schoolhouse door, I think Black makes a compelling case that there are certain institutions, certain occasions uh, where a complete right to freedom of expression and speech is simply not permissible under the Constitution. You know, they don't, and he goes on to cite, a person can't go into the United States Senate or the House or into the Supreme Court and feel free to speak his mind at, a, you know, at, 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 at his choosing. We, we do acknowledge limits. And I think the idea of acknowledging limits in elementary and high schools is an appropriate one because you can start with what seems to be an innocuous anti-war armband and end up with an armband with a swastika on it or a t-shirt with a Ku Klux Klan symbol on it. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, that's a great point. That's a great analysis of Black's dissent. And it seems as though he's also, he points out how logically it could lead to those sorts of things. And, and it strikes me that he's also pointing out that what might seem like a, a small concession in favor of freedom against government control, it, it really does sort of open a, open the door to the, it, leads, it could lead to a slippery slope toward anarchy in a certain way, right? That this yeah. it, seem, it seems like a small step. Um, if you follow it to its logical extension, he points out in, after four or five paragraphs that, you know, what's next? We're going to hold unconstitutional laws that bar pupils under 21 or 18 from voting. I mean, you can see how it, it, it potentially could lead to the undermining of the idea that there have to be any kinds of restrictions on liberty or freedom. I mean, sure. and the examples you cited, Steve, seem to me, you know, for example, if you uh, just, you know, Try to say anything in in uh, in the uh, chamber when the House of Representatives is in session, right? And see what happens. Right. Uh, you don't have a right to say whatever you want, but there these restrictions on speech are there because they're deemed necessary for um, the law and order that is vital for a good, stable society that at the same time makes possible uh, freedom, uh, including freedom of speech and freedom of expression. So it seems to me as though Black is, is 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 intensely aware of that those things as you're pointing out, Steve. Um, but the impression I get from Fortis is again, uh, the, the 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 they're much more in favor of expanding freedom, and and not so concerned about making or or providing protections for what Black considers to be fundamental law and order. And whether yeah, they did and, that intentionally or not, Scott seems to think they did it intentionally. And Steve, I think you agree. I think yeah. that's really interesting. So, the uh, ahead, the I, great the great irony here is that Justice Black was really known as a First Amendment absolutist for yeah. most of his um, most of his tenure on the court, which began well, I think I can't remember thirty eight or something like that, yep. and uh, and really the last few years of it in the face of the uh, cultural revolution that was going uh, that was going on, he seems to have you know at least rethought elements of that absolutism. He thought that absolutism limited the discretion of the court. So it said, when it says freedom of speech, freedom of speech meant all freedom of speech. And he has great um, 
conflicts with Justice Harlan about this uh, in the late 50s, right after Harlan gets on the court, and great conflicts with Justice Frankfurter before he died, obviously. He had to be alive to have a conflict. Um, and, and, but here he joins Harlan in dissent. <laughs> and, uh, and so, I don't know, he's the one example of someone in the 60s who grew an office in the other direction. And uh, and uh, it's it's interesting to see that play out uh, in this decision. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if I could add again something I mentioned earlier, and I hate to keep sort of celebrating Black's dissent here, but there is also this element of federalism, this championing of federalism on Black's part. He says right at the very end of his dissent, um, we're now essentially subjecting all the public schools in the country to the whims and caprices of their loudest mouthed, but maybe not their brightest students. I thought that was very much a, a Scalia type line. But more importantly, this is what I'm getting at. I, for one, am not fully persuaded that school pupils are wise enough, or even, even with this court's expert help from Washington, to run the 23,390 public schools, 526 systems, et cetera, et cetera, in our 50 states. Uh, so again, there was also a desire here on Black's part to try to protect the, uh, the constitutionally established system of federalism. Yeah, uh, Harlan's dissent is really short, but it seems to echo, again, very nicely seems to me to echo you know where black is coming from on this right harlan says uh, uh he agrees that the state public school authorities uh, are not wholly exempt from the requirements of the 14th amendment uh especially regarding freedom of expression and association but at the same time i am reluctant to believe that there's any disagreement uh on the proposition that school officials should be afforded the widest authority in maintaining discipline and order and good order in their institutions and it seems to me you can transplant or translate that not just from the level of schools, which are extensions of state authority, but to, to government in, in general, it seems to me. I mean, yeah, government has to respect the limits of the 14th Amendment or the requirements of the 14th Amendment. But it seems to me one of the fundamental purposes of government is to maintain discipline and good order in their institutions. At least some of the founders would certainly have agreed with that. Uh, um, and and um, Probably more of them would have agreed with that than is known. I, you know, again, Steve, I don't know that Jefferson and Hamilton would, yeah, necessarily disagree on that on that view of the sort of what they would call the primitive purpose of government. But um, right, uh, Chris, if I could mention uh, something that struck me in Fortas's majority opinion, I think we already mentioned it earlier. I can't find the passage right now, but again, the, the, the line is that students and teachers do not surrender their constitutional rights at the schoolhouse door. I may be reading far too much into that, but that image of the schoolhouse door was very alive, very resonated in the 1960s. And I'm referring, of course, to George Wallace standing in the schoolhouse door uh, to prevent Vivian Malone from uh, African American student from registering at the University of Alabama. I, I don't think that's, uh, again, I may be reading too much into it, but I don't think that's any accident that uh, Fortas uses that language. This is in some ways, I think, an extension of the Warren Court's uh, desire to sort of break down these kinds of, of barriers uh, and produce a more uh, 
egalitarian society where civil liberties are 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 championed uh, to the max. If I could also so, add, uh, Jim Hooper uh, uh, posted something just recently. I was going to mention that. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, please. Is it not true that Fortis and Marshall were deeply indebted to LVJ and would not consciously oppose his war? Uh, great, great point. Uh, Fortis and LVJ were about as tight as you could get. And of course, LVJ, President Johnson nominated Fortis uh, to be the Chief Justice uh, when Earl Warren uh, was uh, going to retire. And of course, Fortis ended up and Johnson ended up withdrawing that nomination because the Republicans and even some Democrats were very concerned about some potential conflicts of interest that Fortis had not claimed while handling certain cases uh, for the Supreme Court. And it, it is true that Fortis was also not trusted by many of his Supreme Court colleagues uh, because he was constantly on the phone with Johnson uh, telling the president what was going on in those deliberations uh, in the Supreme Court chamber. Uh, I know less about Marshall, but of course he would have been deeply indebted to LBJ for putting the first African-American on the court. That's fascinating. I'm yeah, sorry, I, what I wanted, what, what I wanted to, I mean, the, uh, the, the quote that Steve, uh, Steve points out is what I call in Supreme Court cases when I teach, I always try to identify what I call the money quote. So like, this is what the case stands for. And I think Steve is rightly hit on the money quote. It can hardly be argued that students or teachers shed their constitutional rights to freedom of speech or expression at the schoolhouse gate. Now, with that, with that quote, the, the, the questions that it raises to me are, are there other constitutional rights that students don't surrender at the schoolhouse gate besides freedom of speech and expression? And then the next question is, what are the limits of freedom of speech and expression in the schoolhouse or, you know, inside the schoolhouse gate? And, um, and so, you know, just thinking through uh, the implications of that money quote, uh, I, I think will help maybe organize subsequent developments in the area of school discipline. And uh, there's there, you know, do students have the right against unreasonable search and seizures in schools? Do they also have that constitutional right? And this is ultimately dealt with, and no doubt uh, all those attendees who are teachers uh, end up being somewhat familiar with the rules that uh, they don't have such protections in their lockers or in their purses. Um, uh, and, and anyways, the kinds of speech that it exp extends to. Does it extend to obscene speech? Does it extend to um, uh, the, the treatment of controversial topics in student newspapers? And uh, so these are things that ultimately also come up uh, in subsequent uh, uh, cases. This is really a difficult question. I, 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 I appreciate both of you being here so we can help think more, more clearly about this, but there's so many gray lines here and we've had several comments from um, people joining us, uh, many of whom it seems teach. <laughs> and so they have to they have to deal with this fine line between um, encouraging, you want students, high school students to be able to think and speak and express their ideas on certain things. But, but, um, but of course, I think teachers take their job seriously and, and, and trying to do that in a 
we'll call constructive way, right? So how do you find that that um, that that balance, that fine line between the two? I think it is an important question, and it probably will continue to be an important question uh, in the future, because this case, like so many cases, though it's a landmark case, did not settle the question. And as Scott and uh, Steve, both of you, I think, have pointed out nicely, in many ways, it raised more questions and perhaps opened even greater, even more cans of worms, uh, so to speak, on this. So. Thank you both for your time today. Do you have any other thoughts that you'd like to leave us with on, on this particular case? Any last words to uh, uh, to people joining us, perhaps, on how to approach this or how to how to help their students um, think about this? Well, I will just add, Larry Fatah. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing your last name right. Larry uh, had a nice point towards the end when I. <laughs> cited Black's pitch for allowing local school boards to call the shots. He said, I'm compelled from personal experience to think that our school board is not wise enough either, but I digress. <laughs> That's great. Good point, Larry. <laughs> well, well, again, thanks to both of you for joining us today. This has been very enlightening and, and uh, raised a little bit of controversy, as I think uh, is clear from some of the comments and questions that were submitted, and I think that's a good thing. Um, so again, thank you very much, both of you, for your for your time and, and thoughts this morning. Thanks, Chris. It was very enjoyable. Greatly appreciate yep. it. Yep. Hopefully, we'll thank do you, it again everyone. Time. Good. Thank you. Uh, and again, thanks for the great questions and, and comments uh, um, that that were submitted. Um, again, a very lively conversation. I enjoyed that very much. Uh, don't forget, you'll receive an email with the link for a certificate of participation. Um, Consider looking into some of our MAG courses where we raise some of the same kinds of questions. It's not done exactly the way we've done it today, uh, but our online MAG courses in particular, uh, one of the benefits of an online MAG course is you take a course with a very thoughtful scholar or instructor, but everybody has a microphone and a camera and can actually jump into the conversation. Um, so if you're not familiar with our MAG courses, our Master of Arts courses in American History and Government, take a look at TAH.org and uh, let us know if you have any questions about those. Our next Saturday webinar will be March 11th, and it will be Roe v. Wade with John Deenan of Wake Forest University and David Alvis of Wofford College. So hope to see all of you then. Until then, best wishes. Take care. Thanks. Thank you for listening to another TAH.org podcast. You can find archives of all our previous programs, as well as information about future programs at tah.org webinars or on iTunes by searching for teachingamericanhistory.org.